Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, um, not in Lancaster, but of Lancaster and indeed of SEPAD. I'm delighted to welcome Mustafa Menshawi to the podcast. Mustafa is our new postdoctoral research fellow. Um, he's the author of a number of publications on a range of different aspects of Middle Eastern politics, including leaving the Muslim. Muslim Brotherhood, and a number of other um, wide-ranging areas of contemporary political life across the region, and I'm delighted to say that he's joining us on the podcast now. Mustafa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. It's my pleasure, uh, Justin. It's, 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 it's great to be part of that fantastic team of yours. Well, it's great to have you, and it's great that, that you're here with us both as a, as a member of our collective, but also on the podcast today. So even though you are, uh, you are a, a member and a, a very important member of SEPAD, I still have to ask you the, the usual questions, Mustafa. So can I ask you, um, just to begin, what got you interested in, in politics and academic life in the first place, please? Uh, thanks, Simon. I think that I just uh, I have to uh, try to be brief to answer that question. Otherwise, <laughs> it's going to take me two days. Okay. Uh, it, it's uh, yeah. It's uh, uh, what got me interested in, in politics is a number of reasons. First, is my background. Uh, Egyptian as I am, uh, I was born in Egypt, and then I start working for. Uh, just uh, Al-Ahram Weekly, which is a newspaper in English in Egypt, and I was a local reporter. As anyone hears of Egypt, it's uh, politically active, I would say. So uh, I was actually in the 2000s. That was a time of active dynamics between the opposition and the the, the, the regime, all of the pressures coming from the Americans after 2011. So there was a lot of politics to cover. This is where my interest. And actually, I was living that kind of frugal lifestyle uh, until 2005. That was actually, it's a, it's a very great uh, year for myself, because as the English say, big events comes in twos. <laughs> I applied for two jobs uh, well, at the same time. The first one is the BBC when I was in Cairo, and the second one was Chevening Scholarship, which is actually one of the most prestigious scholarships uh, uh, in, in the world, actually, to do your master's at, at the UK. And uh, for all of a sudden, I got within the same week two letters, and the first one is acceptance to be uh, uh, to do my master's at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, and the second one is actually to be part of the BBC team at London. So that was great news. And Amazing. when I start working with the BBC, it's actually, I was taking all the time, time off to do my master's and then actually going back and just after 10 years, I said, well, just it's 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 getting uh, enough in a way. But during my work for the BBC, I covered the Arab Spring as it's unfolding. They sent me to very interesting areas. Uh, you can you can imagine they are yeah. not as quiet as it should be. Uh, they sent me to Egypt and Libya. Just I actually have a lot of uh, just great memories about this kind of uh, very harsh uh, life uh, sleeping on the floor at Zahri Square or Benghazi 
Uh, anyway, and uh, then I did my PhD at Westminster University in 2011, 2012. And I, I was very lucky because the, at the department, they asked me to teach from the first year of my doing PhD. So, um, and that was, that was really great because I, I got involved into, I was part of the politics department. So I was teaching different areas and that got me more involved in politics. It was a bit more easy way because sometimes they ask me to teach, well, I would say the, as a, uh, the, the cheap uh, visiting lecturer <laughs> as they used to be at the time to teach a kind of sovereignty and globalization and not only the Middle East politics, and that broadened the horizon of, of what I, I am doing. Sure. And, uh, and then I moved to uh, my first, proper first uh, academic job after the PhD was at Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. And this is actually, um, I, I, I got the time, not only the money, I got the time to work on my projects. Uh, so I actually was very interested in in in, in some political phenomena in, 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 in the region. And this is where it, uh, I picked it to get more involved in politics. Amazing. So, so many things to pick up on. Uh, before going into maybe the events of 2011, I, I must press you on this. Going into journalism and and getting that that interest and in everything that was going on I mean, it's it's quite a it's quite a, an interesting path to take uh even even pre arab uprisings immediately after 911 of course but what was it that that pushed the 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 journalism direction why why did you decide that journalism was something that really intrigued you um, thanks so much for the question. I think that I have to refresh my memory and go back literally 20, <laughs> 25 years ago. Actually, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, which is, you know, if you ask that question to a very just uh, uh, journalist with a lot of navel gazing, he's very the vanity of journalism is there. Where the, <laughs> the Fleet Street kind of journalist, he would say, "Okay, I was born a journalist." Uh, so it sometimes actually comes being a journalist. It comes with the the passion of being a journalist. So it's 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 you cannot actually find a mechanic just way of uh, causing a person to be a journalist. It's, it, it's a it's it, it, it has this kind of passion. But secondly, honestly speaking, it's uh, the conditions, circumstances in Egypt uh, at that time. If you want to be a journalist, one of your unique selling points in the Egyptian context is language. And sure, because yeah. English, I was actually learning at, at university English Italian. So I thought that kind of language is giving me an access to the international broadcasting atmosphere of journalism in Egypt. So it's not only working within the local journalism, it's working within the, the broader perspective okay. of, of, sure. of journalism, a lot of reporters there. So I didn't quite realise that the primordialist uh, dimensions of journalism that you've just flagged up there, Mustafa, but um, thank you for, for doing that. Let, let's jump to, to 2011, if I may, and um, your, your time covering the Arab uprisings. What are your memories of, of Tahrir Square and Benghazi then? What, what do you recall? Of, of Tahrir Square, what comes to my mind is a bit silly uh, details in a way because uh, the BBC actually booked me uh, uh, 
uh, a room in a five-star hotel at the uh, Ramses Hilton, right. which is literally overlooking the Tahrir Square. And all of a sudden, actually, it's come out of this kind of everyday, lavish, lavish lifestyle, big breakfast, to come to the Tahrir Square and cover people actually literally sleeping on the floor, the actually dividing kind of one loaf of bread between them. And, and that was a bit weird. It uh, sounds like discrepancy between the poor and the rich. Yeah. So I decided after two days, three days, actually, it's a bit unfair. So I actually moved into the Tahrir Square uh, fully and just, and that was, that was part of the experience actually because I was spending mostly nights up there and mornings while keeping this kind of distance as well as being a journalist as I am. So it's a kind of great memory as well because as an Egyptian, I've never seen this kind of national unity between everyone actually, Muslims, cops, the Muslim Brotherhood members, non-Muslim Brotherhood members, Islamists, secularists, everyone had this kind of same target. So the divide and conquer policy of the Mubarak regime was no longer there. And all the, just if I say it, as, as, as the negative aspects of the lifestyle, daily life, it sounds like an idealist moment where all mm. the negative aspects, all these kind of the harassment, which Egypt is a bit kind of mired into, just as the news can tell, disappeared all of a sudden. So everyone felt this kind of nationalistic atmosphere. We want to get rid of Mubarak, and the 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 all the sense of solidarity is great. My experience in Libya is a bit different because it's all the time the revolution was a bit fighting between rebels or fighters and the regime. The people actually, because Libya is vast, double the size of Egypt, a lot of desert actually coming across. So you. We, I didn't literally communicate with people. The public aspect is no longer there. I usually go with the the the, the rebels as they move across the 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 between the east and and, and west uh, from Benghazi at the point, and they try to push push Gaddafi. But it, it perhaps as well the risk that comes with because Gaddafi was using planes before the no-fly zone from the EU, the NATO, and it, and, and it was really dangerous. It, it's yeah. All the, the the stuff that I learned, all the hostile environment courses that I took with the BBC, they were not very useful, especially when you keep uh, seeing rockets coming your way from the sky and you're not quite and you're literally running from the planes, which is a bit funny and, and whimsical. So it, it was a bit harsh uh, way of getting rid of a, a, a dictator in Libya, and it, it really needed this kind of international. Inv- intervention because otherwise it it can t- t- it can take years uh, in, in one way or another and uh, and, uh, and and I have to be very honest it was very harsh psychologically as well of course the BBC yeah. realized that they didn't uh, they didn't ask me to stay for that long so I probably I stayed for for one month uh, five weeks or so so it was not that long uh, stay but I can I can actually just think of it as a longer time when it comes to the pressure and I might focus in Libya because it it was very complicated politics. I focused mm. in the human interest angle, the people suffering because of what's really happening. So all the interesting angle. And honestly speaking, if there's kind of thing that I can speak about my work, there's one single report where one person, one thought of his kids. 
and he has to do kind of five funerals for them in one way or another because they come in consequently. So it was really following the story of this gentleman was really heartbreaking for myself as a parent now. But it it, it, it shows the human cost that people suffer, people in uh, this kind of the, 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 the politically classified struggles, I say. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. And so very very tough to to cover to listen to and to to reflect on as a as a parent as well so yeah so mustafa you 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 did that but then you started the phd then at, at westminster tell us just a little bit about the phd what was the what was the drive there to to pursue your your academic knowledge to to contribute to debates but what were you trying to do and what was the the end goal I think my pitch, as, as someone who's actually coming from this kind of very, very, at the, the buzz life of the journalism into academia, which with all you do respect, uh, Simon, it's a bit quiet, I would say. <laughs> it's, it's a bit different. Yeah, there are no rockets yeah, coming at you. Yeah, well, just, uh, yeah, if you, if you say so. Just so, a few uh, nasty reviewers. Okay. I, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to keep that passionate element in what I do because I want moving from. I actually I was. Uh, I have to. Um, I'm really sorry if I say it, but it, I, I left that journalism at the point when I was really successful. Just I got offers from international broadcasters. I yeah. won kind of two prizes, one prize, and so. So it's, it's. I have to leave for something as meaningful and as 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 uh, relishing as it could be. So my PhD was about the gap in 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 uh, Egyptian politics because if you ask an Egyptian what he or she thinks of 1973 war, and she says it's a great Egyptian victory, we 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 rocked the Israelis in that war, and all of these kind of red Uh, But once you read history, real history of the happenings of this war, you realize that there's another perspective, another point of view. Mm. So I wanted to know how the Sadat Amora constructed and reconstructed the mind massive, unquestioned victory. There's a bit of religion glued to it as well. And as well, it got personified and personalized. So once you mention Mubarak, he comes as the hero of war and peace. So I want to trace the trajectory of this construction that makes even the Egyptians never question that war as an Egyptian defeat. Uh, even when I'm speaking to right now, I hopefully some Egyptian listeners would say, oh, what crazy, uh, unexpected uh, prepare presupposition that I make. So the, that the, my PhD was about this kind of interplay between discourse uh, constructed by the state leaders with all ideological state apparatuses like the media, uh, textbooks, uh, religion, and politics as such. I mean, my by politics, all these kind of the political agents can do in order to influence the discourse in a certain way for a certain reason. Um, so this is where, where my, my PhD were, was about. And I was very lucky that by the time I finished my PhD, I managed to publish it with Palgrave's uh, Rift uh, Middle East Today series. So, uh, yeah, and and, uh, of course, I I don't like to look at back the book now because I can find a lot of things that I can move with. So my main argument is actually 
the legitimacy of uh, of uh, and it was very interesting to latch it up to what's happening in 2011 because I believe that what happened in in, in 2011 the getting rid of Mubarak is a moment of dealignment a kind of dissonance between the discourse of 1973 and his legitimacy based on it people are no longer believing accepting that because he's the hero of the the the, the 1973 war we have to take him as our ruler for granted for for centuries uh, as such so this is a moment of a moment of rupture between the perception of the the war and personification of it and reality as such uh, in, in in the uh, the real political meaning of it fascinating really really interesting stuff and that was called uh, state memory in egypt's victory in the 1973 war ruling by discourse yeah, thanks for mentioning the name, Simon, because I, I think everyone is taking notes and adding it to the curriculum now. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, definitely. I can hear the, the sound of pens rapidly scratching away, or <laughs> or perhaps keys on a keyboard is more appropriate. But, um, Mustafa, you, you've, been very, um, you've been very prolific, actually, given that you, you published your PhD, and then very, very quickly you, you published again. You published this uh, this wonderful text, Leaving the Muslim Brotherhood. So tell us a little bit about that, if you would, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, just someone you said in the introduction, I'm moving within wide-ranging areas of interest. And I hope <laughs> sometimes that comes as a card. It's, it sounds like an English statement, uh, euphemistically referring to I'm everywhere. So it's... Uh, well, not in a negative yeah, way at all. Right, I, yeah. I like the intellectual eclecticism. I think it's wonderful. So... Please, carry on. Yeah, 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 thanks so much for that. That sounds like a stiff upper lip. For me. Okay, <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll buy it. As, <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just one area of my interest uh, is, because I'm, I'm picking what um, I love, I would say. Okay. It's actually, I noticed in 2011, a lot of people, uh, individuals leaving the Muslim Brotherhood, and they are publicly announcing it. It sounds like a disclosure of, of, of this uh, spectacle of disclosure about it. So I am I was a member and I got out. And all of a sudden, actually, I start tracing these kind of numbers, and I found there are many. And 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 uh, about honestly, the moment that broke my heart, and, and I, perhaps I'm thinking too journalistically here, is actually in 2014. The, a young lady, she was 23 years old. Her name is Zainab Al Mahdi. Mm-hmm. And she killed herself. She committed suicide. She was 23 years old. I followed her videos. She was very bubbly, uh, young lady, full of life. And all of a sudden, she committed suicide. So I made the kind of contacts with her uh, friends and asked why she did that. And, and one friend said to me, because she got out of the brotherhood, she cannot cope. She suffered from psychological pressures, social pressures, and she committed suicide. So I asked the key question, what kind of uh, movement, what kind of political or religious group that can actually, getting out of it, can push one person to, to get rid of her, her, her life? And this is where my key, uh, the key question is actually how people leave the Muslim Brotherhood. What are the costs that they incur? What kind of opportunities, political opportunities, provided by the state or non-state actors that facilitate this kind of disengage, disengagement for the group. So I look, for example, at the state behavior, the state 
dynamics uh, as, as politically as they are, how they help in this kind of disengagement. And it's really interesting. It's kind of linking the brotherhood, uh, the, uh, internal dynamics with the political dynamics of Egypt in 2011 and afterwards. And, and I found very interesting uh, because I traveled to Turkey where many ex-members and members of the Brotherhood, they are in thousands. Mm. And I, in order to see the Turkey factor, how the Turkish, the, the, the moving, the relocation to Turkey as a, the state is providing political and discursive opportunities. It's really funny because Turkey is uh, and defined as an authoritarian state. It's not giving voices to even its own Islamists. And all of a sudden you find a kind of Islamist so having this kind of opportunity to get out of the movement because they moved to Turkey. Perhaps that relates to the liberal society or, or other kind of elements of acceptance expressing their desire to get out of uh, the movement. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so this is my, my, and, 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 and this is my second, second project. It's kind of the interplay between uh, the disengagement and, and the politics at large. Fascinating. What I find fast, what I find really interesting about the, the, the Turkish case and the, the brotherhood is in addition to the, the large numbers of, of people that have left the brotherhood and gone to say Istanbul, you also have large numbers of Brotherhood members that have fled Egypt and gone to Istanbul. So you have the sort of the movement of those types of debates from Egypt to Turkey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is very interesting. Thanks, thanks for mentioning it. I should have clarified it. I think it's a, it's, it comes with that Turkey is becoming a hotbed, a kind of the place where you can decide your own destiny the, the the this kind of choice that it it's it, it was no longer there in, in if, if anyone understands or reads about the 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 dynamics of engagement inside the brotherhood it's based on this kind of communion this this kind of uh, exclusivity it's a weenist exclusive we we are part of the islamic community we are not interacting with the outside world and all of a sudden members and ex-members found themselves in a very dynamic social uh, vibrant uh, atmosphere where they can start thinking. This is why actually part of my the chapters of mine are divided as ideological disengagement. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a kind of a battle of ideas as well as political disengagement. It's actually how the state is is, is facilitating that. And I, what I what I would say it sounds a bit controversial, but the state of Sisi as brutal uh, as as it is as repressive when it comes to the Muslim Brotherhood, is opening opportunities for ex-members actually to, not only to get out, to, but to publicize their getting out, to benefit from it, uh, mm. actually. Many, oh, some some, some mem ex-members, they publish their autobiographies via the state printing houses, they come on TV, they go for, for travel trips, they are even appointed as, as journalists or actually kind of state jobs, which all the time that means they, they run the security check and <laughs> The, the yeah. security guys sitting at the top saying that is fine. Uh, he is he is literally one of us. Uh, of course, this slowed down a bit after 2013. What happened with the coup? Yeah. But generally, the states. Uh, the, uh, as an actor supporting this kind of dynamics of getting out of the group, it, is, it sounds very, very, very interesting to me because it's different from the the general trend. I would say. Yeah, it's it's really really interesting, and that that discursive dimension that you you flag up is is really key, and it's something that I've I've noticed quite a bit in your work more broadly. This this focus on the discursive dimensions. You've done quite a bit of work on discursive ideas of of sovereignty, which 
is is really really fascinating. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to seeing you apply some of these ideas about discursive practice to um, to discussions of sectarianism and desectarianization as well in the not too distant future. Yeah, by the way, just it's really interesting. What dragged me? What it's it's uh, dragged me into Sepad. Uh, it's it's uh, the actually what after reading your work, uh, just Simon and the 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 books that you have written and your approach to the whole project of sectarianism as a difference. You have to. It's about being different, exclusive from the society or the uh, polity that you are around. I can actually situate the the brotherhood as such because it's the brotherhood sounds like a sect in this kind of sense of the word, and with it, it's it's where the political dynamics and engagement and disengagement is working. So the the, the greatness of this project is that I can include the Muslim Brotherhood, not necessarily the Sunni Shiite classical divide of sectarianism. So it's sect. Sectarianism in this constructive way mm. that moves outside of the remit of being Sunni or Shiite. And this is where actually I, I believe I will belong. Well, I, I think that's a really interesting point, and it's certainly something that 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 needs further exploration. Not so much the intersect tensions, but the, the idea of intersect tensions, with sect defined broadly, of course. So I'm really looking forward to this, uh, Mustafa. I think you've got so much to to offer to to what we're doing with Sepad, but also to to scholarship in general. I think you're doing amazing work, and I'm I'm really delighted. First of all, to have you on the podcast, but second of all, and and perhaps more importantly, that that you've joined Sepad, and um, yeah, really looking forward to to working with you into the future. So thank you so much for today, and um, yeah, all the very best moving forward. Thanks so much, Simon, and uh, thanks for coping with my uh, waffling. <laughs> Not at all. It's It's <laughs> been wonderful. So thank you, Mustafa. Thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time. <laughs>